0: Welcome everybody to our ANZAC Day episode of Grace Radio. We have a really special episode today. We are obviously going to talk today about ANZAC Day with one of our lovely parishioners, Mike. We are also going to have a lovely power parable about the sheep's and the goats, as well as having a chat about Noah's Ark. We're just talking about the 35th anniversary with our young people in Antioch. It should be a lovely episode. Looking forward to it. Here. On Grace Radio.
1: Earlier this month, we celebrated the 35th anniversary of the founding of the Diocese of Broken Bay. On the 8th of April, Bishop Anthony celebrated Mass at Our Lady of the Rosary Cathedral for the special occasion. Now, one of our kind parishioners, Alyssa, will now read the homily that Bishop Anthony presented that evening.
2: Who celebrates 35th anniversaries? you might be asking yourself? By modern-day Australian standards, 100 years is considered a relatively long period of time and worthy of remembrance. In the church, where we measure history by 50 or 100 years, it is quite short. So how and why do we measure 35? In our context in Broken Bay, I take inspiration from our Indigenous neighbours, who from ancient times have valued the richness of telling the story recounting the sacred narrative that spans time, but is not limited by time. Our gathering today is in that same spirit. It is the very same spirit that urged people of Israel to tell and retell the story of their liberation and exodus from slavery in Egypt. It is the same spirit that animated the Emmaus disciples as they encountered the risen Christ. They told their story of what had happened on the road and how they had recognised Jesus at the breaking of bread. So we rightly pause to do the same. We acknowledge those who have gone before us and marked with the sign of faith. We celebrate this moment in the present and we look humbly yet confidently to the future filled with Christian joy and hope. Above all, we give thanks to Almighty God for his unfailing love and mercy. In 1986, 35 years ago, the population of Australia was a little over 16 million. As of yesterday, population has surpassed 25.7 million inhabitants. In 1986, John Paul II was Pope, Elizabeth II had been on the throne for 34 years, Bob Hawke was Prime Minister, Cardinal Clancy was Archbishop of Sydney and Bishop Patrick Murphy was named to be the first Bishop of Broken Bay. In that same year, Halley's Comet crossed our skies. The Australian Act of 1986 came into effect granting Australia legal independence from the United Kingdom. Crocodile Dundee was a smash hit at the box office. Tennis champion Rafael Nadal was born. The space shuttle Challenger disintegrated 73 seconds after launching. Petrol was 52 cents per litre at the Bowser. The first case of mad cow disease was identified and the Parramatta Eels defeated the Canterbury Bulldogs 4-2 in the grand final. This was the world into which the Diocese of Broken Bay was born. A community of the church drawn from 144,000 Catholics across 39 parishes under the pastoral care of 54 diocesan priests and five communities of religious order priests. Their presence and mission of the Sisters of the Good Samaritan, Sisters of Mercy, Sisters of St. Joseph and the Loretto Sisters and several other institutes of religious women, along with the Christian Brothers and the Patrician Brothers, were well established in the community of the New Diocese in 1986. Catholic education and charitable works of mercy were ministries already active in the local communities, often under the guidance of leadership of committed lay women and men alongside the priests and religious. From the very beginning, this local church has been blessed by an active lay apostolate reaching beyond the parish into the more critical and challenging areas of mission. In 2001, to mark the 15th anniversary of this local church, Bishop David Walker commented that, Our story is important and is necessary to understand the communion of disciples of Jesus. The history is the story of people. The story of our Catholic people is inseparable from salvation history, by which we are all joined as the people of God to the living body of Christ. Through baptism and confirmation, the people, deacons, and priests of this local church are incorporated into Jesus and animated for mission by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. Such a rich patrimony of faith is indeed worthy of remembrance and we give thanks to God. We also recall the shadow parts of our history, remembering with shame and sorrow the times when members of our community were neglected or harmed. We ask forgiveness and we recommit ourselves to safeguarding every member of the community, especially the young and vulnerable. The words from the scripture that we have heard today are particularly meaningful for us at this time. They remind us of the first moments of life in the Spirit of Jesus risen from the dead. As disciples of the risen Lord, we too are called to exercise a ministry that is more wonderful than the prophets of old, because it is a ministry of the new covenant of love, revealed through the death and resurrection of Jesus and made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the Acts of the Apostles and in Luke's recounting the narrative of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, We understand how the early church was alive in the spirit. The faithful lived as one, sharing what they had. Their goods and possessions were held together for the common good. The domestic church was the locus of welcome, concord and companionship in the Lord. Together, families, members of the household would gather in prayer, offering praise and worship to God. However, that was not where it ended. As disciples of the Lord who formed the community of the church, They were filled with confidence that urged them to call others to life in Christ. These first Christians did not call and accompany people to live in the Holy Spirit because they were more sophisticated or better than others. They did so because God had made them capable for this ministry. As women and men imbued with the spirit of the risen Christ, they preached the new covenant of love by lives filled with joy, love and peace. My brothers and sisters, This is what we are urged to do in our time, in this place, at this moment of history. We imitate Christ. We follow in the footsteps of the first disciples because we too have been renewed by the Spirit of the living God and the risen Christ. All who are baptised into Christ are called into the mission, a ministry of proclaiming Christ to the world, whether they realise it or not. It is the work of God proper to those who live life in the Spirit. As the community of the Church of Broken Bay, We have been given the gift of the Spirit to recognise the mystery and wisdom of God. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. How might we use this gift, my sisters and brothers? How might we live according to the grace which has been given to us? How might we discern where to speak, how to act, when to reach out and whom to love? This is as much part of our 35th anniversary as is recounting the story of our church. It is only by asking these questions in the light of faith that we will be authentic disciples of Christ in the world. Living the life of Christ according to the Spirit will draw out the very best of our Christian community. We are seen to be authentic in our faith and mission when we joyfully undertake acts of charity, when we as a community, we have to care and concern for all people, regardless of where they come from or what their joys or sufferings might be. Like the early Christians, we want to foster and promote family life, where each member can discern their vocation to holiness. All of this, my dear people, flows from Christ and returns to Christ in our prayer and worship of God. As spiritual people, we are gifted with the Spirit who enables us to discern and live out the Christian vocation in our homes, our schools, our places of mission and mercy, in our ecclesial movements, in our parishes and in the world. As we look to the future mission of this community of the church, we do so with joy and hope, because this is the work of God and we have been called to it. The Spirit animates us for communion in the body of Christ, upon whom we are built. Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today and forever. This is, of course, the story of our salvation. This story includes our conversation, our past, our present, our future. As we glorify God in the Eucharist, We also praise God for the women and men, for the clergy and religious, and for the bishops of the diocese who have, in the words of Bishop Peter Commensoli, been the foundation for the work of our church in the mission of forming Neighbourhoods of Grace. May this 35th anniversary year provide an opportunity for profound and prayerful contemplation upon our past. May it be a blessed time, a festival and delight in the present. And may it be a spirit-filled time of renewal to animate us to live and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, into the future. Amen.
0: Power, parables, power, parables with Megan.
3: Hi everyone and welcome to another session of Power Parables with me, Megan, where we walk through the Bible together and hopefully bring ourselves just a step closer to God. So in today's parable, we'll be looking at a parable called The Sheep and the Goats.
0: Wow, what's The Sheep and the Goats about?
3: So The Sheep and the Goats is an interesting parable that really hones in on one of the major values of Catholicism and Christianity in general, and that is being a kind and generous person.
0: Lovely. Let's hear it.
3: Sure. So for everyone who'd like to read along with me, It is Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 to 46. And it goes like this. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Before him all the nations will be gathered and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will tell those on his right hand, Come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer them, Most certainly, I tell you, because you did it to at least one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry. And you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. Naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick? Or in prison and didn't help you. He will then answer them, saying, Most certainly I tell you, because you did not do it to at least one of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So um I guess a lot of these parables tend to deliver the message quite subtly. But I think today's message was delivered with a strong hammer. Uh, what are your thoughts, Dan?
0: That's really interesting, Megan. Parables can often have lots of layers of subtlety. It's, it's fairly obvious what Jesus is trying to say here and what he's trying to portray. I'm sure there's deeper layers as most things are. But I think the question is, are we the sheep or are we the goats? Because I would, I would hope that we're the sheep. But it is really easy. It's unbelievably easy. It's almost in our nature to look after ourselves first and you know, then look after the people around us, hopefully if you know if we have time for that. But we're called to serve and we are called to charity. And a big part of the Christian faith is that we have to provide and protect for those unfortunate. Even I'm gonna butcher this quote a little bit, like even the misers like save money for their kids. It's it's those who provide to the community and, and provide to those who cannot provide, give anything back. If you give someone a favor who in return, they're going to give you a favor back, you haven't done that for God. You've done that for yourself. But when we give to those who cannot give back, then that's when we're doing God's work. That's something I think we have to, I I definitely have to aim towards. We, we have to try and do better. And uh, I guess when we see all the Christian charities and, out there, we are at least aiming towards that. And I think this really helps us, this guides us to keep following the path of Jesus in that way.
3: Yeah, beautifully said, Dan. Um, I agree with you entirely. I think um, reflecting on this parable really does make me stop and think about, you know, whether I was a sheep or a goat and what I can do to make sure that I'm being more charitable. I mean, of course, this parable does say that people who aren't charitable – may eventually be damned and cursed. But I think even more than that, this parable is sort of reminding us that being charitable and helping those around us also benefits us and makes us feel good. So I think um, if there's anything to take from this parable, maybe if you do happen to see a a person in need or maybe feel like doing a random act of kindness, uh, this week is definitely the week to do it.
0: Excellent, yeah, because he wants to be a goat. They're so grumpy, they're so miserable. Sheep, they're fluffy, they're nice, they're kind. I'd love to be a sheep. Yeah, exactly. goats, no good.
3: <laughs> yes, so here, you had it here, folks. Be a sheep, don't be a goat.
4: Ugh, Alexander, I've been having all these confusing thoughts about Noah's Ark. Why on earth did he decide to bring two of every single animal? We know that God's instructions were two of every single animal, but why didn't he just leave out flies and snakes and bugs and all those irritating creepy crawlies like mosquitoes? I agree. Definitely.
1: But you do realise that, you know, all these insects and all these... Bugs and, and snakes, you know, they're so crucial in the food pyramid.
4: Yeah, but have you noticed that I have all those weird scratches on my arm? Well, they're from mosquitoes, which is why I personally think that mosquitoes shouldn't have been brought on the ark.
1: But mosquitoes, mosquitoes can fly, right? And they're really small. So do you think extra or do you think more than two mosquitoes made their way onto the ark? Or maybe they weren't even on the arc, maybe they just flew around.
4: Didn't the storm go, s- the flood go so high that it reached the top of mountains?
1: H- have you, I'm sure, a mosquito? I mean, me personally, I've never seen a mosquito go climbing before, but I'm <laughs> sure mosquitoes could go quite high.
4: Maybe mosquitoes wouldn't be able to fly that high because once you get to a certain height, Probably hard oxygen, <laughs> well, bugs surviving on top of higher, highest mountain peaks.
1: Are you a mosquito expert, Olivia?
4: No, I do not like mosquitoes at all.
1: Oh, so everything that you just said about mosquitoes could just be, you know, out of rubbish. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, why don't we just assume that mosquitoes could fly that high and then they were fine. They were chilling. So mosquitoes out of the way. What's the next animal?
4: Another thought would be how sea creatures like sharks, whales, fish, they all survived on the ark.
1: True. If they were on the ark, surely they would have, you know, they would have there was no water for them to breathe and they would have died, surely.
4: And surely they weren't in the ocean because the ocean would have flooded so deep that it would have been hard for them to get air if they were swimming at the feeling they normally would. They would have had to swim all the way, probably miles, to get some air.
1: What if Noah had a really big tank in the ark maybe it was an aquarium where the land animals could walk through and go oh cool a shark oh cool a lionfish
4: are you thinking of sea life aquarium that's possible (laughs) but imagine the size of the ark that would have been like 50 million apartments combined together maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration but to keep predators like lions and prey like Birds, and if we had to include creepy crawlies, that would have been somewhat a disaster.
1: How did Noah feed all the animals on the ark?
4: He, he was probably quite prepared and brought a, a lot of the food that animals eat, like grass, hay, meat, bananas.
1: So do you think, uh, so let's say lion, right? So there was there was two lions on the ark and let's say the lions were hunting for antelope. Do you think uh, Noah had a spare set of antelope reserved for the lions?
4: Probably so. not. I mean, this was God's will, and He was He asked Noah for a reason to do what He did. So God probably had His own way of providing for Noah, and He did work miracles by protecting the animals and Noah and his family. So I think God would have had His reasons and would have helped Noah. So Noah wouldn't have felt that much stress having all these animals around him. Mm-hmm. At least God made that promise to mankind by using a rainbow, so that He could promise that never flood the earth again.
1: Oh, I saw a double rainbow a couple of months back. Is that sort of a double negative? So is that saying God, God will not not flood the earth again?
4: Um. I think no? that a double rainbow doesn't actually happen; that it may just be a reflection with the sun and water. I'm not sure. I'm not a scientist. Okay. At all.
1: Okay. So, a couple things that we now know: there was an aquarium in the ark.
4: <laughs> we never said we knew for sure. We Noah
1: knew. did not have a spare pair of antelope for the lion. <laughs> mm. And to feed the herbivores, did he have a massive greenhouse?
4: Maybe he cut down whatever trees there were and stored them inside the ark.
1: Surely he would have used every tree he could find to actually build the ark, though. Yeah,
4: Yeah, so he kept the bark and the trunks of the trees, but he would have obviously taken the plants and leaves.
1: Well, listener. I hope you learned as much as I did. I always gain a new perspective on things when talking to Alex and Olivia, and don't worry, we'll be sure to get them back on soon. There are so many more aspects of Noah's Ark that we didn't cover, so I strongly encourage you to discuss these with your friends and family. I'll leave you with this. If Noah had giant aquariums on his Ark, is Noah the true inventor of glass? What an ingenious man.
5: Hello again, listener. Welcome back to The Grace Podcast. I am here in the studio and I am honoured to be sitting opposite one of our parishioners. His name is Legatee Mike Kinneen. Mike, how are you?
6: Great, and I'm very happy to be here today, Lewis, to speak to you. All good, all good.
5: Well, I, I'm, you're not as happy as me, I know that. <laughs> so could you tell us a bit about your, your involvement in the parish in, in St. Gerard's?
6: Yes, indeed. My wife, Fran, and I... Uh, and our three elder children moved here uh, to Epping in, in 1976. And our youngest child was born here at Epping in 1978. Fran and I are still very involved with St. Gerard's Church. I am a reader at 7.45am masses, and Fran is very involved with St. Gerard's Adult Choir. Right. So,
5: Mike, tell us a bit about yourself
6: Well, uh, a lot of people ask me, uh, did I actually serve in the uh, Australian Army? Well, I never served in the regular Army. I actually served in a thing called the CMF or Citizens' Military Forces. Right. Uh, And I was in that uh, for between 1963 and 1974. Uh, The CMF is now called the Army Reserve. Uh, I did actually, when I was in the army, sign a form to say I would serve overseas if required, but thank goodness that did not happen. Uh, Many men and women served in the military over the years, but were never called up to serve overseas. But as one person did say to me, many of us did always answer the call of the bugle.
5: Yeah, I see. Now this segment has sort of an ANZAC theme, and that's perhaps because Anzac Day is just around the corner, uh, if it hasn't already passed. Now, Mike, what exactly are we remembering on Anzac Day?
6: The Anzac tradition began during World War I with a landing in 1915 at Gallipoli on the Turkish Argenian coast. And this is awful to understand the next sentence I'm going to say, but because of a navigational error, the Anzacs came ashore about a mile north of the intended landing point. Therefore, instead of facing the expected beach and gentle slopes, they found themselves at the bottom of steep cliffs, offering the few Turkish defenders an ideal defence position. What had been planned as a bold strike to knock the Ottoman out of the war quickly became a stalemate, and the campaign dragged on for eight months. At the end of 1915, the Allied forces were evacuated after both sides had suffered heavy casualties and endured great hardships. The action of the Australian and New Zealand troops during the war left a powerful legacy. The beginning of what became known as the Anzac Legend and an important part of the national identity in both countries.
5: Yeah, now you say it is a significant part of the Australian identity. Is there any other traditions that that people do? Can you tell us about the traditions of Anzac Day?
6: Well, one of the traditions is a thing called the Dawn Service, Mm. and people say, what is it? But after the First World War, uh, returning soldiers sought the companionship they felt in these quite powerful moments before dawn. With links to the dawn landings at Gallipoli, a dawn ceremony became a common form of Anzac Day remembrance during the 1920s. The first official dawn service was held at Sydney Cenotaph in 1927 and is now held at war memorials around the country. I see,
5: I see. Now Mike, formerly you're known as legatee, Mike Canine. Now legatee means means what?
6: Well legacy is where a group of men and women who are called legatees uh, provide assistance to families of veterans who are either deceased or who are disabled, who have given their life or given their health for their country. But uh, legacy is a charity which was formed just after the First World War. And the people who started it were veterans of the First World War and they are fulfilling a promise they gave to their dying mates to look after the missus and the kids. And that's how Legacy started. I am a member of Sydney Legacy and I have been a member of it for over 25 years. The only other thing I wanted to say about Legacy is that uh, many of you would know that Legacy has a Badge Day appeal, which is on the first Friday of September, and Epping Boys High School students help sell uh, badges at Macquarie Centre and Cox's Road Shops each year. Jack Foster from Antioch helped sell Legacy badges some years ago and he set the record for sales, which have never yet been beaten. The record, is it? Wow. I have to, I have to, yeah, what is the record?
5: I, 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 I can't give any figures. Oh, I see, I see. In fact, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, have to, I have to ask him about that later. <laughs> now we'll be back with Mike in just a second to talk about the parish's special connection to Anzac Day. But for now, here's Leanne and Megan. They're going to talk about some events and opportunities coming up in the parish. So don't go anywhere.
3: So as you know, listeners, uh, we've been having quite a few Paraparable segments over the past few months. So I think it's time I let you in on a little bit of a backstage secret of mine. So every time I read the power parables, I've always referred to the parables from an extract on the internet, which has been kind of unfortunate because I guess for me, there's really no better feeling than being able to open up the Bible, a nice leather bound book and go through the pages and really absorb the word of God through that method.
7: Well, Megan, I can help you out there. Let me tell you what the Bible reading group has in store. So this upcoming weekend, the 24th -hmm. and 25th of April, after any weekend mass at both churches, you can buy a discounted Bible for $15.
3: Oh, $15, really?
7: That's like the price of a a lunch or something. It's quite the steal, I have to say. And you can also purchase a children's Bible for
3: $25. Oh, so it makes excellent presents for the kids, right? Precisely.
7: Great First Holy Communion present.
3: So, I mean, let's be real though, listeners. I guess you want to do a little bit more with your Bible than just, you know, use it for Power Parable segments. So...
7: Do you whoa, whoa, whoa I- Megan. I, I can help you with that as well. Let me tell you about the weekend after that on the 2nd of May at St. Gerard's at 10.30 a.m., the Bible Reading Group we'll be reading the Gospel of John. Ooh. Yeah, so, you know, just after 9.30 Mass, just at St. Jared's, just you can bring along your Bible and just enjoy the reading of John.
3: Oh, wow. So my Bible and a weekend plan, that's like a two-in-one. But what do I do about the weekend following that? You know, sometimes I just feel my weekends are a bit empty.
7: I can help you with that. And I can help you with the year after that. Because the group will start listening to Father Mike Schmidt's The Bible in a Year podcast. Leanne,
3: I have to tell you, you are an angel. Not only are you giving me discounted Bible opportunities, but also great weekend plans. So, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm absolutely sold. So I hope to see you all on the weekend with your Bibles. And hopefully together we'll be taking a
7: couple of steps closer to God. Well, thanks, Megan. It's a great pleasure. And just letting you know, dear listeners, that more details are in the bulletin. Perfect.
5: Now, Mike, the parish has a special connection to Anzac
6: Day. Is this, is this true? Well, yes. Uh, uh, the parish here has, in fact, got a special chalice, which has been in the at, at Carlingwood Church since the parish was formed in 1963. Wow. The chalice, we presume, was a gift from the Holy Name of Mary Parish at Rydlemere because that parish did assist in the formation many years ago of of Carlingford Parish. I see. But this chalice that we've got there is engraved with the message which reads, In memory of Private William Murphy, killed in action 28th February 1917.
5: Listener, you don't know this, but a couple of days ago I met up with, with Mike and he showed me the chalice uh, that we speak of, the chalice with the engraving of Private William's name. I was told by Mari that apparently this chalice is still used so when the priests go to nursing homes, um, they take this chalice with them and, and sometimes in the in the hall down at Carlingford they'll use it. So if you're lucky enough, you can catch Mari and have a, have, a, have a look at that, that chalice. It's quite a a beautiful artefact. Anyways, so Mike, do we know anything more about Private Murphy?
6: So I decided I'd see what I could find out about Private William Murphy. Okay. And I have done some research into this short life of Private Murphy. William James Murphy was born in early September 1894 at Rydlemere, New South Wales and attended the Holy Name of Mary Catholic School at Rydelmere, which opened in 1889. When he left school, he worked as a tailor's presser. Now, on the 21st of January 1916, Private William James Murphy, regimental number 819, there wasn't many in the army before him, and he was aged 21 years and four months and he enlisted into the Australian Imperial Forces and he agreed to serve abroad. Wow. Just to give some perspective, listener, I
5: recently turned 20. So Private Murphy, when enlisted in the army, was just one year older than me.
6: That's right. right. Mind-blowing. And his next of kin, and this is also very interesting, his next of kin was shown as his father, Patrick Murphy, of Victoria Road, Ridled me. There was no number, (laughs) there was no thing. It was just one house and and it didn't even have a number on it. Wow. Now going back to uh, Patrick Murphy, uh, he's trained in the Australian Army as a member of C Infantry Battalion of 36th Battalion at Liverpool. And on the 13th of May 1960, not not quite four months after he signed up, He sailed for England with his battalion and spent four months training in the United Kingdom. In November 1916, the whole battalion sailed to France and moved into trenches on the Western Front just in time for the onset of a terrible winter of 1916-1917 in Europe. Sadly army records show that private William Murphy was killed in action by a sniper's bullet on the 28th of February 1970 in the field of Flanders just two and a half months after he arrived in France on 2nd of March 1917 he was buried at saitai bongeen military cemetery at Armetiers in Lille in France The final entry in his army records was a note from his mother, Mrs E. Murphy, and she notes that she is now the next of kin of William Murphy deceased, as her husband, Patrick Murphy, had died shortly after their only son was killed in France in 1917. Rest in peace, Private William Murphy.
5: Yeah, that's a that's a very, as you were saying, a very heartbreaking and poignant story. You also told me back then that you visited the Australian War Memorial.
6: That's right, I did say, and, and if you can have a look there, I was down a few years ago at the War Memorial at Canberra and I saw that we had uh, filled the form in, or someone had filled the form in to have his name put on the honour roll, that's
5: right. yeah, so listener, you, you can't see this, but Mike is there's a there's a photocopy of what is an original document called the uh, particulars required for the Role of honour. Beautiful handwriting, all the details of William James Murphy. Possibly we think his his mother's writing. I think writing. that would
6: have been his mother's writing. Yes. Yeah. But uh, that's right. So the mother, his mother did fill in a form to have his name put on the honour roll and if you ever go to the war memorial at Canberra uh, at, on, at the war memorial is a whole wall of names of people who, who deceased in all the wars that Australians have served at. And so I did find his name on the wall and it was on a very high position on the wall so they provided me with a sort of a gantry uh, that, that uh, I could wheel along, climb up and reach up and actually place a poppy. I see. Uh, against yeah. his name. Now, at that time, his was one of the few names that didn't have a poppy against it. And I just wonder if that poppy is still, still there. Perhaps now um, I could just read the ode and uh, I could say that with everyone, could you just bow your heads now and listen to me read the ode? They shall grow not old, as that we are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we shall remember them. Lest we forget, lest we forget. Rest in peace, Private Murphy.